there's a certain mindset to become a SEAL that you don't know anything. And the guys who think they know something are painfully awakened from that daydream. So you have this growth mindset or this learning mindset to begin with. And if you're like, hey, this is just part of the process, everything they're doing to me and and making me go through is part of the training. It's all done for a reason. And and I'm just going to roll with it. And in business, it's very similar. Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. I'm Ryan Sheckle, health enthusiast, amateur ultra runner, and award-winning business consultant. And each week, I interview the most accomplished people in the world. From professional and Olympic athletes to CEOs, best-selling authors, and even the occasional magician to demystify what it takes to achieve success at the highest level. Take what you can from these stories to optimize your mind, your body, and your career so you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing the time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. James Allen said, circumstance doesn't make the man it reveals him. I am so excited to share today's episode with you guys. When I started podcasting, I made a list of about 10 individuals that would be my dream guests. And Todd Ehrlich was at the top of the list. He's a former Navy SEAL turned entrepreneur. He founded Killcliff, my all-time favorite beverage, amongst a number of other successful companies. He started a venture capital firm, empowering founders with the resources needed for success. And as a philanthropist, He also raised over a million dollars for the Navy SEAL Foundation. If you like this episode, I have a favor to ask. I'm trying to get 20 new reviews on Apple Podcasts this week, and I need all the help I can get. So if you want to support the podcast, please search Every Breath Counts Podcast on Apple Podcasts, scroll to the bottom of the page, and click and leave an honest review. This will help others find and enjoy the podcast. Now... It is my privilege to introduce you to Todd Ehrlich. Well, Todd, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. You've got an unbelievable history. And the one thing that I want to start with that I'm, I'm so curious about is I feel like SEAL training is largely considered just the ultimate training ground for life, for career, for anything. Um, how'd your experience in the teams prepare you for your journey into entrepreneurship? Good question. I think if you go back to the training itself, it's really meant to weed out people that don't have the ability to, you know, embrace the fortitude needed to make it. And a lot of that is actually mental, like just the way they structure everything. It's meant to break you down. And it's meant to like, just when you think you're like taking two steps ahead, you're really taking two steps back. Right. And that's where guys like lose it. They lose it when they get screwed with. And business is kind of this infinite game and, you know, things are constantly landing in your path on the journey that kind of throwing you off. And, and a lot of people let that get them down. And if you realize it's just part of that kind of infinite game that you're continuously playing, it's better from a mental health perspective. Um, And sure, we all see the people that look like they just waltz right through life and business and never came across anything. But yeah, I'm almost 50 years old now. And I have enough experience and enough very close friends that have been in similar positions that like, I don't care how easy someone made it look. They're not like it was not easy. They had a lot of tough things they had to get over and and they'll be the first ones to tell you like no entrepreneurs going around hiding the fact of how difficult it was. But I think going back to the SEAL thing, there's a certain mindset. You're going into SEALs to become a SEAL and you know that you don't know anything that you're going into. You have like you're like a blank slate to them. And the guys who think they know something are painfully... Uh, awaken from that daydream. So you have kind of this growth mindset or this, you know, learning mindset to begin with. And if you're like, hey, this is just part of the process, everything they're doing to me and and making me go through is part of the training. It's all done for a reason. And I'm just going to roll with it. In in business, it's very similar. Like all these things that happen, if you manage it correctly, all these things add value to whatever you do next or the next project. So I, I try to have a really good healthy attitude about it and not get down about when things don't work well. Cause sometimes it just don't work and you got to realize that and figure it out. 
make it. Work, so, so is that fortitude? I mean, is that something that you feel like can that really be developed, or is that something you're just kind of born with? And it's it's interesting to think about because. In a way, I feel like you can train people to somewhat overcome adversity, hardship, struggle, have patience by putting them in situations where it's required. But at the same yeah. time, what you're talking about of if someone comes into SEAL training, they may be physical specimens. They may have, and to get to that physical specimen point, they've probably gone through some of that adversity of training, working out, playing sports. It's just not up to the level of maybe a SEAL. Yeah, great point. I'm not a physical specimen, <laughs> but there are people who show up to SEAL training that are on another level. And physically and talent-wise, if I kind of loosely use the word talent, like yeah. maybe they're incredible swimmers or runners or something like that. I was a little bit above average, maybe. Like some of these folks that come in that were maybe like the quarterback of their college football team or, or the, the the captain of their college swimming team or whatever. Mm-hmm specimens, many of them, appear to have been treated very well their entire career because they were the franchise for that sports team or that organization. And they get to SEAL training and it's a rude awakening. They don't care. There are, there are literally a hundred of these people showing up, you know, four times a year or whatever the cadence is now uh, to, to try to get these very few spots to become a SEAL. And then you get the average Joe, if you will, a guy like me who's very motivated and really wants to be there for the right reasons, and they're willing to do anything to do it. Um, So compartmentalizing that one piece, like there are these specimens that come in, they actually don't do that well. You see a lot of them quit. We, you know, my friends and I like kind of talk about it. On, On the other hand, you know, I think the fortitude, like nature, you know, versus nurture concept. It's really hard to say. It's really hard to say like, really? Yeah. I mean, it's really tough. I I think some people develop more fortitude. I did. I got better going through SEAL training made me a much better person all the way around. But again, I was open to it. I think some people are, have these fixed mindsets and they're kind of like, hey, I don't need this crap. Like well, I had a roommate who quit during a room inspection uh, because he had spent all night shining his boots, which was a dumb thing to do. And <laughs> while I was like cleaning the room and he quit because like they come in and they kind of wreck your room and his boots got scuffed up and he was all pissed off. And I was like, we know they're going to come do this to us. Like it's not like oh the God. fact that you're surprised like that you're still wet and sandy shows that like you shouldn't be here. So good job quitting. See you later. Right. So I think it's just one of those things. And then you get some people come in and they're like all full of piss and vinegar and they're just like, I'm in the wrong place. I should not be here. Right. I I would imagine it gets exposed quickly. Yeah. Yeah. And and those guys are, you know, you kind of respect them for that because there's other guys that try to hide it and be like, Oh yeah, I hurt my leg and they didn't really hurt it or whatever. So those types of things, a lot of it transcends the business. But one of the things I do talk about with some of my successful military business friends is how not as much would translate as you think. Right. So it's, Yeah. Just because somebody's really great at being a military person doesn't mean that they're really great at being an entrepreneur or even being in business at all. Now, I would say it means that they're probably going to be better than the average person by a lot, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to be the end all be all entrepreneur or that they're going to be the best hire you've ever made. Like anything, some of these folks have been in an institution for a very long period of time. And so making that transition to civilian life and the way it works and understanding where to find value in business and and how to make things work, it doesn't necessarily translate. The military is very prescriptive of how they kind of dole out what you're supposed to do, how you're supposed to do it it's almost nice and comforting. You're like, Hey, here's all the things you have to do to make it to the next level and you know, get promoted and, you know, just don't get in trouble and this will be your career. And that's kind of nice, you know, in a way there's not a lot of uh, uncertainty in that, right? The uncertainty is really gone They're They're so good at saying, Hey, you're going to go from, you know, 
point A to point Z and and you're going to take all these steps along the way. And it's so, so well thought out for someone to go from that to, hey, there's total uncertainty about how much money I'm going to make, where I'm going to live, what my future, my retirement is going to look like. You know, like guys in the military get all excited about like how much retirement money they're going to get. You know, that's great. But once you get out, like there's a ton of uncertainty around that. It's not a perfect translation to the civilian world. But I think the underlying, you know, personal fortitude with which either you walk in with or develop there is incredibly valuable moving forward in your civilian life. So there's a couple of skills, right, that that translate well. And, and you're talking about fortitude. I'm, I'm curious about certainty, though, because my mind, um, military can be a different experience for just about anyone that's in it. I'm not I'm not a veteran. I did not serve in the military. But when I think about different maybe <clears throat> tasks or roles within the military, I think that there are some that are very certain, that are very reliable, and there are others such as the SEALs, such as special operators in any branch of the military, specifically within the fog of war where there's quite a bit of uncertainty. Now, would you say, just from your experience, that someone who maybe has more time in special ops or someone who has more time in war where there's less certainty, there's more creativity um, in that aspect, would be more inclined to pursue something like entrepreneurship or, or be successful at it? So the, the, there's probably not as much uncertainty as you think, like okay. the fog of war and all that stuff. Like these guys are so incredibly highly trained and every scenario has been thought through. And for the scenarios that aren't thought through, there are actual, you know, other plans uh, like, Hey, if everything else, you know, doesn't work, try this. Um, we'll pick you up here or whatever. So every scenario is usually kind of run down. There's a lot of work that kind of goes into kind of pre-morteming a, a, a mission or a backcasting. What does success look like? How did we get there? What could have gone wrong? There's so much of that. I think the military probably does that better than anybody. Like we could learn mm-hmm. a lot military and business by doing a better job. We do that here. My partner's an F-18 aviator and, and we spend a decent amount of time trying to think through like, hey, what's going to go wrong here, right? And so that's probably a little bit unique. So it's probably not as, as much as you think, but the special operations community in, in particular have usually been pushed to another level um, mentally and had to suffer one way or another, whether it was in like some of the stories I hear about what guys have gone through in a, a war zone is frankly unbelievable what they've uh, been able to make it through. And then even in the training, it's you get pushed pretty darn hard, right? That's why there's a reason why the, the attrition rate is so high. I think that some people will realize that there is a path forward in business and you just have to find it. Unless you do a really bad job and you didn't think things through, and you, there's almost never like, hey, we are literally at the end of the road. I've often seen people that are, are at the end of the road who have, it's almost like a self-imposed end of the road. They put in like, I, I could have mm. figured out how to get out of that. So I think that mindset of like, hey, I'm just going to keep moving forward is definitely related to the same mindset that gets people through training. And then also having kind of like a good sense of humor about like, hey, some bad stuff happened. We're just going to laugh it off and, and figure out what to do next. And nobody's shooting at us. So it's not that bad. So I don't know if that exactly answers your question, but I think, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit different. Like there is, sure, there's creativity and some things that need to happen. Most of that stuff has been planned out. This is more of like a mindset of like, I know there's a way forward. I've seen somebody else do this and I think they're you know, good people and everything. But frankly, if they could do it, I should probably be able to do it too. So if that guy could figure it out, I could figure it out. So I think that's part of it. There's a special operations guys have kind of an overachiever mentality. And I think that that helps too. I believe it. I believe it. So as a special op- operations guy, overachiever guy, um, was, was Killcliffe... So you started working out of the SEAL teams. You didn't go right into entrepreneurship, right? You, you started in... Was it finance or what, what was your... Yeah, yeah. I started out like in, in, in finance 
Um, I wanted to work in the stock market. I actually had an opportunity to work for the New York Stock Exchange. So I kind of had to take a couple steps to get there. While I was doing that, I got this position for this really well-known kind of white-collar investigation company. And then they put me on a job for this big company where I worked with the CEO and, and he was an entrepreneur. And so he was like really kind of my inspiration. I always knew I wanted to run something, but I needed a job, right? Like, yeah. And this guy was a serial entrepreneur. You know, he's a billionaire and he was like my mentor for seven years. And, and uh, he really took good care of me. He opened up opportunities for me that like I never would have had access to if not for him. And he listened to me. Like he wanted to know what I thought, you know, about things. And um, so that opportunity it lasted about seven years. And then um, I ended up uh, getting an offer to run a startup down here in Atlanta. And that's okay. kind of how I ended up down here in 2005. And then you took that to um, starting your own company after that. Was, was that a, how did you end up deciding to leave a CEO position to pursue entrepreneurship? Or, or did it really start as a side hustle? Side hustle. Yeah. So I started Killcliff on the side, really was working on it like kind of 2007, 2008. And then the market fell apart and the company I was the CEO of was struggling too. And and so I had to kind of focus on that. And the folks that were going to give me money to invest evaporated on me, of course. So I put it on the shelf until 2010. Actually, in 2009 is when I started the company I sold today. And, uh, and, and so I started that, that was like a one point or three point business plan and $15,000 investment and basically talked two guys into running it for me and pulled in two customers and did really well with that one. And then Killcliff kind of was running contemporaneous to that. A guy I went through buzz with got killed in Afghanistan and I felt terrible for him and his family. I, I was like, you know, this could, there could be a lot of these, you know, in, in 2000, he died in like 2003, but like, you know, I just, I had this constant feeling of like, I need to find a way to get back and I don't have the money yeah. to get back. So Killcliff was like my Tom shoes, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. deal where I was like, every time, you know, somebody buys a drink, we're going to give some money. And so, you know, it ended up working that the company's really, really valuable today. And I still own a little piece of it, but the most important piece is that, you know, we've given over a million dollars to Navy SEAL Foundation. That's a big deal. And, and that number is constantly growing. So it was a side hustle. I never intended to run it. Ended up being the CEO for five years. It just worked. It, it shouldn't have worked. It was like, a, it's like a bumblebee. It shouldn't have worked. Why not? So, so this is interesting because I, I've, the people who know me, they, they must think I'm crazy because Right now, I live in upstate New York, but I did live in Atlanta, Georgia for a while, and we talked about that. And I think Killcliff is a little bit more well-known in Atlanta because you're there, because the company started there. It's bottled there. Um, but when I got here, no one knew what Killcliff was. And I was I was doing CrossFit classes in Atlanta. So I was working at or not working, I was working out at some of the gyms that were, you know, sponsored by Killcliff or or had a Killcliff refrigerator. Um in the facility. And I've said, since I tried the first original tasty orange or or blood orange, I was like, this is my favorite drink of all time. I love it. Just the quality of the drink. It's, it's it's crisp. It's refreshing. It's good for you. Like it's insane that a recovery drink that tastes good is good for you. So I, 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 I'm on like a monthly subscription to Killcliffe. I get it. It comes in the mail every single month. Um, I make all of my old fashions with it. I mix bourbon with it and it's the best mixer on the planet. I I promise you that if you're listening to this right now, I say it almost every single podcast is that mix your whiskey with Killcliffe. It's delicious. Put some maple syrup in it. Boom. Phenomenal. But how did you, and I'd love to talk more about too, just the passion of the Navy SEAL Foundation, but how did you as an entrepreneur who had no experience bottling drinks, A, how did you decide that there needed to be a healthy recovery drink that actually tasted good? Um, And then B, how do you bring a product to market with absolutely no experience? Yeah, I saw a gap in between 
like kind of isotonics like Gatorade, Powerade, and energy yeah. drink. They kind of need to be filled. Um, where it was like a better for you, healthier, lower calorie, lower caffeine, but uh, rehydrated you. I saw the opportunity there. It was it was what I wanted to drink. I made it for myself. But my 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 buddy, who's my banker and has been a very very close friend of mine the whole whole time, was just always like, man, it's just an exercise and straight up, hundred percent tenacity. I had no idea what I was doing. I'll never forget one time we were. Yeah, we're doing a production run. We're actually what we're doing, we're getting like new cans made. So they run you through a special facility and it's kind of where the corporate headquarters of the can company is. And these people came in, I didn't know who they were and they wanted to meet me. And I was like, Oh, hey, nice to meet you. You know, and, and <laughs> like, why do you want to meet me? And they're like, something it's something crazy, like five hundred plus or a thousand new brands come to them every year with, you know, they want to make stuff. And Maybe uh, 10 of them get to to the point where they're, you know, making like a million cans a year or something like that. And then of of those, 3% of them make it to over 10 million a year. And so I just crossed like that 10 million mark. And they were like, this is, you know, like a unicorn. I I guess the point is, it was one of the blessings of going through SEALs and, and, everything I've done my whole career. Like I have this ability to completely underestimate how difficult things are. And then coupled with this ability to not want to give up once I'm uh, in the middle of the fight, if you will. So there's like this kind of ignorance, tenacity, balance that uh, I have a proper harmony with that allows me to, to do those things. Like I, like, Almost every single thing I've done, I really had no idea. Like, I had no idea how hard SEAL training was going to be. Literally, I mean, everybody says it's hard. There's a different level of how tough that really is when you get there. You're like, oh my God, this, they're not messing around here. So then, you know, you have this this ignorance harmony right here. But was part of it, because I know you said you started it as well because of the Navy SEAL Foundation and and just this, this just innate desire to do something that gave back to something so meaningful to you. Do you think that you would have had that tenacity had you not kind of coupled this business venture with this philanthropic just idea? Well, I I would turn that a a little bit on a different angle and say that I don't think it would have done as well had we not had this purpose. So the purpose gave us a tremendous amount of lift particularly in the early days with the team. Cause it's like, it was really not like I, like people are self-selecting onto the team cause they want to help the Navy SEAL foundation. They're not doing it. Like, you know, sure. They get a paycheck anywhere, but this made them feel good uh, about helping out. Like, and you know, I think it was one of those things where having a purpose drove that brand and made it a winner at the end of the day. And it connected with their, with the audience, you know, the buy the consumer of the product connected with the community, uh, the, the Navy SEAL community and, uh, and kind of, and the organization too. So I think it was a, a very lucky spin on giving back and, and, and having the proper brand for that community. Is that something when you're talking to other entrepreneurs and, and other founders of companies that you would advocate for having, having a, a visible kind of mission that's less self-serving at the core of what they do? Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you can weave a real, you know, authentic purpose into building a business, the better it is. Because when everything sucks, like having a purpose is very motivating. You're like, well, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for them. I'm not doing it. You know, I, like Kill Cliff was very hard. We had a lot of ups and downs. We had many near-death experiences and the purpose is what kind of got us through when there was discord in the business. The purpose is what made it work. I think anytime you can embrace a a true purpose, it it definitely helps a lot. How do you get others to bind to that culture? Right? Cause it's one thing to say like, this is important to me. And and I know that you did have people that came to you to work because of the, because of the foundation and they wanted to give back a little bit, but I mean, it's not like it's just one or two employees. Like, Killcliffe is a big company. So how do you in any of your companies create a culture where everyone cares? 
Yeah. Culture is like the biggest thing. It's the toughest thing to get right. Um, it, it, it matters so much. And everybody says they're like going to be into the culture when they're interviewing. Um, it's another yeah. thing, like once they're on the ground and doing the job. In the business I run today, we've had a lot of experience with that where we're like, I, I kind of, one of the, one of the, not epiphanies, but one of the things I realized not so long ago or like kind of hit home not so long ago, like about a year or so ago was, you know, everything I've done to like get here is not exactly what's going to get my organization here. So I'm just raising my hands, getting to the next level. It's like that scaling issue. And so in the past I would be like, what does this person need? How can I make their life better? Like, how can I do all this stuff? And then, and, and now I'm more like, if they aren't clicking with the culture of the organization, like they're probably not happy. And if they're not happy, it's time for them to go somewhere else. And I hate turnover in business. I like, I used to pride myself on how long I could keep everybody and you know, how great that was. And we have very low turnover in the, this business today. And we had very low turnover at Killcliffe. But now I realize like, if we have somebody that's just not on the same culture bus as everybody else, they just need to move on. And because that, you know, what ends up happening is they like, end up like throwing like little culture hand grenades and, you know, meetings and, and all those things. So I've gotten a lot more, uh, dare I say, draconian about people that aren't like running with the culture. And then now I'm a little bit more, you know what, like I've done this enough. I know what we need to do. I knew, I know what the culture needs to be like. I know what the cadence of these things need to be. We're just going to do that. It's, it's very pragmatic at the end of the day, whereas before I was trying to not be all things to all people, but I was really trying to make everybody happy. I'm doing much less of that these days because I, I just realized like there are certain people like there's nothing you can do. They're not going to be happy. And the sooner you realize that, like I don't have some super happy power button and I used to think I did and I just don't. So it sounds pretty cynical and uh, jaded, but I wish I would have realized it sooner. That's that's impactful, though. I think that's really impactful. It, what When you were talking, I was kind of taken back to... Um, it was like a viral YouTube clip that uh, this author, Simon Sinek, had. And he talks about when selecting people for the SEALs, there was a couple quadrants that they lumped people into, performance and trust. And he was saying that they would not always choose to take the most high-performing individuals, whether it be physical, mental. Trust was one of the bigger aspects of it. So there had to be this balance, this fine balance of high-performing, high-trust. I'm curious to get your perspective on that. How do you select employees that you think are going to be high performing that are going to that you're going to be able to retain yeah so i I think you know trust is so critical um it's kind of everything you're you're lost in business without it so i I think there's a couple of things one is like you're that layer of people right around you as a business leader like you have to really trust them and there can't be any friction there Mm. um, because the people that they bring in below them like you're going to just you're going to like if they leave, you're going to end up with that same set of trust issues with that next group down. I've seen that over and over again. So making sure you're really on the, the same page with folks. Um, and it's tough to get all of that sometimes, depending on it can be driven by different things like what culture did they come from? Did they come from a big company culture or startup culture? There's a lot of things like that. Like what kind of questions are they asking about compensation? Like, you know, that that can tell you a lot about like, are they thinking long-term here or is it more like, what do I get today? So the way I approach things now is first of all, we do a lot of testing, right? Um, So we have three different psychological tests that we give new hires And they meet with a PhD in psychology to talk about the answers to their tests. They also have a bunch of meetings with different people on the senior leadership team just to get in the door. People say our process for bringing people in is incredibly difficult. Um, I, I feel like, Hey, you know, if I like, I'm going to spend call it upwards of a hundred thousand dollars on average hire, I get to kick the tires a little bit. You know what I mean? I get to, to, a little bit more where this breaks down is when you're in a rush, like the very early days of business, you got to just get someone to fill that seat. So I try to be more patient and methodical now. Um, 
And then the other thing is I always tell new folks like, hey, like I, this is like a 90 day test drive. And if you're not comfortable with that, then don't come over. Um, because if you don't work out and I've rarely done it, but I've had to do it. Like, cause a lot of times people get the new position and they're like, whoo, okay, cool. That's over. I'm in, I got, I made it, you know, I passed it. And then they stop trying. I need more performance in that 90 days than ever. Cause you don't know what you're doing yet. Right. Like you haven't figured it out yet and you've got to be dialed in. So I feel like if they kind of start with the concept of, Hey, I have 90 days to prove myself they're personally setting their own bar higher than just coming in and like relaxing and be like, Oh, check out this new leather chair. It's, <laughs> so I think it's a different mentality to start with, but trust is kind of everything. You know I mean? I look at the, the, my part, my, my partners and kind of the trust we've built over the years, you know, it's, it's everything. What are you looking for in those psychological tests? Cause I've, I've gone through some like performance, um, or personality testing throughout interview processes. And I'm always yep. curious, we use them to help us particularly manage different personalities, um, but also just have a tendency to understand like, okay, th- this person um, may approach their business this way or, or whatever it may be. So as someone who utilizes a lot of it, what are you actually looking for? Yeah. So there's a few things. One, we're screening for people that are psychopaths. <laughs> One psychopath just can ruin a startup. So that sucks. Um, you know, always trying to get those people out. Also, I've had people where I told them we're doing a psychological test and they just never show up again. Really? So I don't know why, like I never got the chance to ask one of those people why they never came back, but maybe they think we're weird, but, um, or maybe they have something to hide. I don't know, but we're really trying to see. And then we've had people say, Oh yeah, I totally like try to game that test and, and then, okay, cool. You game the test. Let's take it again. See how it comes out. And it's like the same results. So that's the interesting thing. So like finding out that like, Hey, someone's trying to game something is can be valuable. I think for, for us, you know, we're trying to see the way their brain works. Are they going to fit into the team? We had somebody on the team that left a few months ago and they had like incredible drive to be in charge, Mm -hmm. which is fine. I mean, I have that drive, like, got partners with that drive and that's great. But there's also a, a kind of a gear where you put that drive in neutral and you, or you let somebody else take the wheel or whatever. The warning was this person's not going to be able to like get out of that gear. And we talked about it and it turned out it didn't work. It just didn't work. We're looking for like red flags, early indicators of what can we manage or not. Had we not known that, it would have been a total disaster. It ended up being not a disaster. We managed for it. It just didn't work out. But so we're kind of looking, we're looking for those things. And then, um, you know, a lot of people aren't incredibly honest on not saying they're intentionally being dishonest, but some people, and it's pretty clear they're not intellectually honest with themselves about uh, what they're really good at, what they really want. They sometimes are just regurgitating back what they think you want to hear. So there helps us figure out like what is what's like a you know a base assessment of this person look like, kind of covered with their biases and everything else, right? So just trying to get a better understanding of who they are and how to manage them, and then also just weed out you know just bad apples. Yeah. So other than like tenacity and fortitude, how do you work through? And I want to, I, I specifically use the term work through and not overcome like setbacks in business. Cause I think it's one thing to say, like, you just don't quit. You know, like it, it's, it's different in a way than seal training. Like, don't yeah. ring the bell is different than business where it's like, okay, well, we can't just not ring the bell forever. Right. So people talk about business failures. I kind of like to talk about what I call suboptimal results. Um, so if you like, we're expecting, you know, outcome a, and you ended up with something less than a, you know, why did you end up there? And then just pragmatically go about, okay, did we pick the wrong a to begin with? Like, were we aiming for the wrong thing? Is there Uh, something else we should be, you know, focus on here? 
And if, if A was the right thing to be aiming at, like, why did we get these suboptimal results and identify that relatively quickly? Because if you can identify suboptimal results early and what's causing them, or if you're on the wrong path, it prevents total failure, right? You can kind of get out ahead of what ends up becoming a total failure, you know, and just continuously minutely pivoting to the direction you need to go in because you're constantly evaluating why are we performing suboptimally? And, and a lot of that has to do with cadence, like how fast are you looking at things, right? I look at all of our investments every day and I'm meeting with our founders of our portfolio companies at least once a week. Most investors in my position are meeting with their founders maybe quarterly, maybe more often, maybe less. But we're really hands-on and so we can get ahead of... Because suboptimal results manifest way faster in a very, very early startup as opposed to, you know, maybe a, you know, private equity-owned portfolio company. Like when you're starting from an idea or seed, like you can get off track real fast. If you let three months go by, you might have lost the entire investment at that point. Yeah, this is something that... I'm always curious about is because what you're talking about is like this urgency to pivot, you know, this this need for speed when it comes to correcting uh, your suboptimal results. And I'm I'm curious when I think about the balance of having patience and having urgency um, in general, in everything, but specifically in business. Because I think, you know, one of the things that you mentioned was it takes a long time sometimes to achieve the level of success. Um where where you can sell your company or to where you are selling 10 million bottles of product. Um, that does take patience. But how do you balance that with the urgency that it takes to get things done quickly, especially in like a startup environment? Yeah. One thing that people often screw up is they don't realize the length of time it's going to take to sell somebody something. So like we have a portfolio company where their average close is like 78 days and like it's way too long and they didn't realize it was going to take that long. So you just think about like everything they thought they were going to do is just two months later than they thought. So that sucks in a startup. So they keep packing that full, but like the results aren't coming for like over two months. It's working, but it's just like working slower than you want. Right. So I think understanding kind of like the cycle of everything, like how long does it take to find a customer? Once you get them to say yes, how long does it take to close them? Like all that stuff. And then shortening those things down takes a lot of the uncertainty out of getting faster and being really smart about it on that particular company. Like they're getting it to where they can have it done instantly, right? They can go from 78 days to instant. How could they make that change? That's a massive change. Basically, there are certain human behaviors where you're just like, yeah, I need this. I want it now. I'll do it. But then if I throw like a 10 page contract in front of you, then you're like, oh shit, I got to have my lawyer look at this. I don't know what I'm saying. So that like, if you just have that as like part of the subscription agreement, like online, you make it super simple, make it easy to get out of whatever people just sign it as opposed to, Hey, I just threw a, a giant contract in front of you. So just stuff like that. Like anytime you take th- anything out of cycle for a person, like review this contract, you can put 30 days on the, on the, you know, extra days on the clock. So I think it's that kind of stuff, just simplifying processes, making it more straightforward. And, you know, and like, it's interesting that CEO didn't necessarily see it like that. And then we guided that CEO to a point where they embraced this concept of, oh, I can do this instantly. This is possible. That's one thing. I think like patience is like, there's a little bit of seasoning of, hey, this is like how long it takes to get X done, Y done, and having enough experience around the table. Like, hey, we've seen this movie. This is how it works. Like that helps. People spend a lot of time and money particularly in startups, they spend to create maybe more business or whatever, but they're not creating real business. They're trying to put points on the board no matter what. And they're creating like very ephemeral business that won't be there in a year. So we want to avoid those types of numbers, like false expectation numbers that make us look better than we are. That you see that more in traditional, you know, venture back deals where, you know, they have uh, really high uh, CAC to LTV ratios or really low ones where it's like, hey, we spent 
$50 to get a $60 revenue customer. You can do that all day long. You know, I, I don't know if I would invest in that, but like people do. So yeah, you see it all the time on Shark Tank. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's so funny when, when, founders get up and they're pitching to the sharks and they're saying, Oh, well we, you know, what, what are your sales going to be this year? It's like, Oh, we're going to do $2 million in sales of, of widget a. And then, you know, Mr. Wonderful or whoever is like, okay, well what, what, what's your customer acquisition cost? How much did you pay in marketing on, you know, Facebook ads or Google ads to achieve that number? And they're like 1.9 million <laughs> or whatever it is. Like, so you made no money. Okay. So you paid for every single sale you had uh, it's an interesting idea yeah and then those aren't recurring sales or whatever so yeah i mean i think being smart around that kind of stuff matters i think there's also this like big tendency of you know startup ceos to do urgent things instead of important things that's you know kind of a, a phrase it's a little overused but i see it every day right they're like Hey, like let's we gotta rearrange these deck chairs. No, there's there's no value created by rearranging the deck chairs. Like you, you you get everybody off. I'm making a bad analogy, but they're just sometimes focused on these things that they think are really urgent, but they really don't develop any value in the business. And I think a, a startup CEO should have a clue as to like good asset allocation. Like they've got resources, priorities, and processes. And they got to put them to work. And if they don't have a good idea of what moves the needle for them and they just start reacting on every urgent thing that comes up, then that's where you see a lot of waste and a lot of wasted cycles. So reorienting them, like what's really important, like what are their rocks for the quarter and getting those done? Because we'll see like, hey, we'll we'll have like a, a startup CEO and they'll have like their four rocks for the quarter and it'll turn into by the end of the quarter, they'll have like 15 and we're like, wait a minute, what happened? Let's get back to these four. And I'm not Mr. Focus guy. Like, I'm like all over the map, like when it comes to, but like I know I've got, hey, these are the this is the wood I have to chop today to make my rocks happen. And so I can boil it down simplistically like that. So I think that's that kind of urgent versus important concept gets missed by a lot of people. Like they're doing work, so they feel like they're being productive, but they're not doing the work they need to be doing in order to create value. No, that makes so much sense. Um, I want to switch gears a little bit here because I I really respect what you've done in your career and your life, just from, you know, going through the teams from, from being an entrepreneur, from now running a company that, that does venture capital for other entrepreneurs, but you're also an individual. What does it mean to you to be a man in this day and age? I've been trying to help people a lot. And um, I, I try to be available. And I knew when I got out of the Navy, which I got out really, really early, like I regret how early I got out and I wish I would have stayed in longer. But I knew that staying in longer wasn't going to have any accretive value to the rest of my life. And all of this experience I've gotten has been incredibly valuable. And I try to share that with people that come to me, military vets and what whatnot, anybody for that matter, and, and to talk about business and like how they can do better and what they should focus on. And so I really try to, I try to help folks. I know that sounds kind of cliches as well, but I mean, I really do. I really do invest in people and even my team, like the company we sold today, I over-invested in, in the team, like to the point of like, people were like, you're crazy. Like you did way too much for those guys. And they got a lot more than they realized they were going to get. And and I was happy to do it because I wanted them to feel like owners. And and I feel like the biggest gift I've ever had is, you know, the gift of entrepreneurship and being able to work for some entrepreneurs and learn from them. And all my friends are entrepreneurs, like just the gift of entrepreneurship. It's like, it's a very special thing. And I just want to share that with people and help them figure out how to find their way as an entrepreneur Um, and it doesn't have to be like, you know, you're eating ramen for the rest of your life. It doesn't have to be a struggle. I mean, it's a struggle. Don't get me wrong. Like it's hard, but it's, and it's harder than because of the uncertainty in particular, but like, that's a gift. And once you have it, it's an incredibly valuable thing. And like, nobody can come and fire me. Like it can't be done. I mean, sure. They could be like, Hey, I'm not going to invest in your fund or whatever, but I'm like, cool, I'll do it then. You know, like it doesn't yeah. matter. 
But that's the gift of entrepreneurship. It's that self-actualization of, hey, I've done something. I started some things from scratch. I, I finished them. I'm a person of my word. I've done all these things the right way. It hasn't always been perfect, but like I've tried to do it the right way. And I, I think, you know, I, I see some people that have been incredibly successful very rapidly. And I've seen them cut corners from time to time. My partners and I refuse to do that. And, and the reason I'd rather take the long way there. I would rather like it take longer and do it right than take a shortcut and do it wrong. And so that's been the mantra, uh, you know, like, let's just do it right. Like, let's just do things right, treat people right, all that stuff. Now, not everyone's going to see eye to eye with us all the time. Like I said, there's just some people that are like, you're never going to make them happy. Like, there's just nothing you can do. Like, they, they like literally want to like show up and want to fight about it, you know, just how some people are wired. But like, generally, you know, like, if you take kind of those losses out of the equation, you know, it's, it's almost all winning, you know? Yeah. And so if you do things right, you just end up in like a lot fewer, like little shitty battles with people, you know, you're not you know, squabbling over, over stupid things. And it allows your velocity to kind of speed up and you, you begin accelerating. So it might seem like glacially slow in the, in the early days, but then it starts speeding up a lot. So now, you know, because of the way we've done things, things have significantly accelerated in my life. And, and I found that the more I give back, the better things get. It's counterintuitive, you know, where it's like, you would think like, hey, I'm going to give all this time to help some people do some stuff. And, and somehow the world and the universe has a way of paying you back for those things. So as a guy, you know, just a, you know I'm, I'm, I'm trying to have a balanced life between work and my community and my family. And uh, that really matters to me. You see people that get so deep into, and I, I feel like it's like so old school to be like this, but they're just so heads down. Nothing matters except making money and business and whatever. That's all that fucking matters to them. And I think that's just a recipe for potential disaster because you see like these lives out of balance, you know, whether it's their family or, you know, they can't, they can't find a mate or whatever the case may be. There's just a lack of balance in their lives. And so I think almost 50 year old ties is, is looking for balance, not just for, for myself, but for my team too. I don't want to, yeah. you know, the job, I can't make people work like crazy for, you know, 10 years straight. Like it just doesn't, it doesn't work. You know, I mean, people do it, but like it's, it's, it causes a lot of damage. No, that makes so much sense. Well, Todd, this has been such a fun conversation. I have three quick questions that I like to end every single podcast with. So I'll get right into them for you. Um, but how can people find you if they want to reach out, if they're interested in, in hearing more from you, if they want to support you? Yeah, most people find me uh, on Instagram, uh, not Instagram, on LinkedIn. Yes, yeah, so people send me a message. And if it's not, that's probably the best way. You know, I don't really use much social media. That's probably a good thing. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So three questions. What's the most impactful book you've ever read? I think Mindset by Carol Dweck was a really impactful book. Just understanding that there were really two different types of mindsets, you know, a growth mindset and a fixed mindset and looking and trying to teach people based on having a growth mindset. Is, once you realize that's actually a thing and it's not just that can happen, that can find its way into everything that you do in a positive way. I thought the grit book was really impactful. Uh, Angela Duckworth, I think her name is. Uh, I thought that mm -hmm. was really fascinating. The research done around grit, it kind of hit home with me. And then there's another book called Give and Take. Right? The, the author is escaping me right now. But I like Adam Give and Grant? Take. Was, uh, was it Adam, Adam Grant? Grant. Yeah. So, uh, so uh, I like that because it made me feel like you can keep being like one of the people that is helping and that's actually a good thing. And, it, and it, it, it's been true, right? It's worked like that. Um, and then, I, you know, I always loved endurance, you know, the, um, the story of uh, Sir Edward Shackleton and, and the endurance uh, voyage, because it's just like one of those things where, you know, the probability of those guys all surviving that journey they went on is kind of amazing. Um, so I, I found that to be an incredibly uh moving story you might say but i love it i love it if you could have a drink 
with anyone in the world, past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? Um, yeah, I kind of got like two favorite entrepreneurs or pretty obvious ones, but Peter Thiel and, and Elon Musk, obviously. And I think those guys are just totally game changers. And so I would probably drink tequila. Um, and uh, what was the other part of the question? And why? So I think why yeah. would I want to? Why would I want or, to have? A why, drink? Yeah. Why do you want to see? Why do you want to drink with them? Yeah. I just like I just find them fascinating. Like they they think like from like everything is like first principle based. Like I I love that. Like they're never like settling for anything, and just to be able to have a conversation around that. Like they're always questioning why everything is the way it is. And I love that. I love that mentality. And to, and to have that superpower like they do to like take it and turn it into, gosh, hundreds of billions of dollars at this point is just phenomenal. And, you know, it's kind of like, like those are like my heroes there. I love it. So the Every Breath Counts podcast, it's all about designing your life in a way that there's gratitude. It's it's efficient. It's optimized. You're living to the best of your ability. And, and that could mean balance too, you know, being balanced in your in your life and your career. So how do you make every breath count in your life? Yeah, so really good question. So I, I have this kind of weird mental thing where I, I I believe that like it's my ethical responsibility to perform at my highest all the time for my team, my family and my community. So like, I, I feel like I can't really take my foot off the gas. So I, I'm always like, and I've passed up a lot of great ideas. So I'm always pushing forward, trying to find like what that next horizon is that I can get my team to, or the community or whatever to make something succeed. So I think for me, it's just having like this kind of ethical responsibility that I wake up with every day that like, hey, there's work to do. I have the things I have to do. I've got a team around me that has to do theirs and we're going to go do it. And it's not about like who's special or whatever. It's our responsibility as adults and members of our communities to do these things. And if if you just like don't do them, you're just kind of a letdown, you know? So like, yeah. I don't want to let anybody down. I want to, I want to provide everything I can uh, with the gifts that I've been given. That's probably it in a nutshell. That's awesome. Todd, this has been so much fun, man. Thank you so much for hopping on and and doing this and having this conversation with me. I just want to acknowledge you because you've had an amazing career, but you've, you've kept service at the forefront of it. And you really have truly given back a lot to the community that matters to you, you know, over a million dollars to the, to the Navy SEAL Foundation through Kill Cliff and, and then just giving back to entrepreneurs. So I think it's beautiful what you've been able to do with your, with your life, with your career. And, um, you know, I commend you for it. So guys, go out, get yourself some Kill Cliff. Todd, next time I'm in Atlanta, I'll have to look you up and uh, I'll bring the bourbon, you bring the Kill Cliff and we'll, we'll have a little uh, happy hour. But tequila and kill is pretty good too. We'll do. Say. Hey, we don't have to have just one. We could have more. We could have more. <laughs> well, guys, enjoy the rest of your week. Fulfill your responsibility and make every breath count.